0: Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to the Intelligence Squared podcast. This week's episode, Revere or Remove, the battle over statues, heritage and history, was produced in partnership with Historic England. For more information, please visit historicengland.org.uk.
1: Thank you. Thank you all very much for that very warm welcome. We are indeed here to discuss a topic which has been in the public mind, both here and in the United States, really for most or for a good chunk of the last year or so. It is, as the title puts it, Revere or Remove the Battle over Statues, Heritage and History. And really our subject in a way is memory and how we grapple with that publicly. Just to say a word or two about the the background to it, I think when the idea first Took root. It was partly because here in this country we'd seen the Rhodes Must Fall campaign, abroad and here, uh, hitting the headlines. Partly when it demanded the removal of the statue of Cecil Rhodes from Oxford's Oriel College, where which of course uh, of, of which he'd been a major benefactor, because of his record as an imperialist, but also in the United States. Last summer, August, it reached a violent uh, pitch in Charlottesville, where there had been an argument raging for months, and in some ways for years, about the statue in that city uh, to Robert E. Lee, a general of the Confederacy, and therefore, of course, a defender of slavery. Uh, Those were two of the sort of pitched battles, but behind those have been a whole lot of others, where people have been debating whether... Keeping these statues in some ways endorses those historical figures and yet on the other hand does the act of removing them seek to erase airbrush, distort the historical record and the arguments are strongly felt on both sides uh, as anybody who will have followed our Twitter feeds over the last few weeks will have seen this is an issue that stirs up strong feelings. So we're going to discuss them all. So without further ado, let me introduce to you uh, our four speakers, and I'll move from my left to my right. No political reading there at all. Uh, First up is the historian and author of the best-selling world history The Silk Roads, he is a senior research fellow at Worcester College, Oxford, and professor of global history at Oxford, which sounds like a very big job. He is Peter Frankopan. (laughs) Next up is the author of the critically acclaimed Keeping Their Marbles, How Museums Acquired Their Artifacts and Why They Should Keep Them. She is a consultant on cultural policy and an honorary fellow in the Department of Art History at the University of Edinburgh. A warm welcome for Tiffany Jenkins. (laughs) On my immediate right, writer and broadcaster, who's worked, among other things, as a barrister, West Africa correspondent and legal affairs correspondent for The Guardian, was also a correspondent for Sky News but came to even greater prominence more recently with her book British, or Brit-ish, on race, identity and belonging, which recently won the Jerwood Prize for non-fiction, Afua Hirsch. And completing our panel, the award-winning historian and broadcaster whose latest book, Black and British, A Forgotten History, was accompanied by a BBC Two series of that name and, of course, known to many here as one of the presenters of the BBC's new landmark series, Civilisations. He is, of course, David Oleshoga. So, so a stellar lineup. as I said, all people concerned with these questions of history. I, I just thought we would do an opening thought from each of you and we'll keep it quite short just to sort of set out a bit of a stall Are there any statues, monuments, memorials, even just one, that's currently in this country, the UK, that you would rather was not here? And we will start with you, David.
2: The statue that I would remove, that I don't think should be on public display, is one I went past in Bristol in a taxi about three hours ago which is the statue to Edward Colston. Uh, To me, it's a very simple case. Many of the figures that we're going to debate tonight, they have two sides to their story. They did great things, but they did terrible things. Colston doesn't have another side to the ledger. He ran the Royal African Company, the most infamous, the most prolific slave trading company in British history. He's responsible, we estimate, for the deaths of around 30,000 people who died in slave raids, died in the holds of slave ships. And he has statues built in honour of him, buildings named after him, because he gave lots of money to the city he was born in, Bristol, that's all. He decided that he wanted to whitewash his legacy and make sure that he was well remembered. The statue in the center of Bristol was built in 1895, he died in 1721. We have no idea what he looks like, never mind whether the statue was an accurate representation of his likeness. This is somebody for whom there is no mitigating argument. Because statues aren't about remembering history, they're about memorialization. they're about saying this was somebody who we should revere. The statue says he's a wise and virtuous son. He's not wise, he's not virtuous, he's a killer. And his statue shouldn't be on public display on the streets of Bristol, but it should be in a museum. Because when we talk about toppling statues, very few people are talking about their destruction. We're talking about taking them off public display, taking them out of the arena where they're celebrated. And... There are thousands of statues in museums across this city and across Britain. I think the statue of Edward Colston in Bristol should
1: join them. Thank you. Tiffany Jenkins.
3: There are lots of statues, people like Colston, who committed a number of evil acts. There are lots of very ugly statues. There are lots of forgotten statues. I see no reason to tear any of them down. Certainly, I, I wouldn't have a problem with benign neglect or <laughs> even defacing them because this is a public space. I don't think it's a radical act. Putting them in a museum, I think, just relocates the debate from the public sphere to an institution. And I think there would be a danger that, you know, museums are not the most neutral spaces either. Um, I think there's almost like a danger of. Um, Policing people's responses to them and relocating the culture wars to museums, which I think would be a problem. Just let them, let them go. I don't think... I kind of, the politics of symbolism is not really a very progressive cause. There are far more important things that we could be doing.
1: Are there any that you would then say, OK, we'll benignly neglect that one, and we'll let that, we won't clean and polish that one?
3: Um, I have... I, I'm not... Most of them. I don't think there's any that I would actively kind of put flowers at the... I I just think in a way that they're... They're in a public space. I think David made quite an important point there. They're in the public space, so I kind of think it's up to the public to respond to them as they see fit. I mean, I live in Scotland, and in Glasgow there's the statue of the Earl of Wellington, and he's had a cone on his head for decades. Um, The council tried to elongate him so they couldn't put any more cones upon him. I think that's entirely fine. I don't think we should revere or be reverential about these things. I think the past is a complicated and messy place and it's quite good that it's under our feet that we pass it. I think it's quite interesting actually the Colson is okay. quite interesting. I think in I grew up in Oxford and I think the Cecil Rhodes statue is quite important for telling us how Oxford was built, who went there, you know, it's that kind of complicated aspect of showing us our past is quite useful.
1: Good. We're definitely going to come back to all of these. Afro.
4: I would have no issue with the removal of Cecil Rhodes. And the reason is not only that he was an imperialist; he was actually more like a buccaneer. He was regarded by his contemporaries in an era of empire and imperial expansion as an embarrassment to empire because his behavior was so out of control. His racism was so unpalatable. So I think that he's an interesting character that goes to the heart of this question of whether somebody like me is imposing modern standards onto a different era where there was a different morality at play. By the standards of his time, Rhodes was regarded as a problem, let alone by the standards of 21st century multicultural Britain. And the thing about Rhodes' statue in Oxford and his presence in Oxford is that this is still an institution that excludes people of colour, that excludes the descendants of the kind of racist white supremacist system that Rhodes did so much to help build, that hasn't addressed the inherited intergenerational injustice and inequality of that system. And so it's, it's, it's it's a double whammy it compounds an already painful injustice for students struggling with an institution that hasn't repaired that wrong, to then have a figure like Rhodes in a position of reverence. And I think what Tiffany says about benign neglect is interesting, but for me, the reality is when somebody is on a plinth in a public space, when you crane your neck to look up at them, that is an act of reverence, whether you like it or not. I don't believe we have a sophisticated debate around the statues that are in public places. We simply walk past them and look up at them. I would be much more interested in putting them in a place where there is an educational process There is a genuine conversation and there is a context.
1: Thank you. Peter, what would you nominate for not being there? Removal is such a loaded word, but if you could wave a magic wand and there was a statue or memorial you'd rather not have around, what would it be?
5: Well, I don't want to either trivialize tonight's debate or these are very important questions. And in fact, it's about about history. So, I mean, if we were shutting on this, I'd, I'd then run. But, you know, it's just a statue. You know, hands up who's been to Paris in this room, or Rome. Can you name any 19th or 20th century statue you saw in those two magical cities? You know, we don't look at statues particularly. I mean, it's, it's exactly right. When a, when a figure becomes important because it's a matter of discussion, like Rhodes, then that prominence becomes an important topic to talk about, which is what, we want, what I want to talk about this evening. But by and large, London is filled with... 19th and 20th century statues, almost all of them are men, almost all of them are soldiers, almost all of them make no difference to our daily lives. So, I, there is a question about editing the past, but my view as a historian is that a job of a statue is eventually to fall. Right? That's, wh- that's why you put a statue up. You put a statue up to commemorate someone and then time, it could be years, it could be decades, it could be hundreds of years. You know, that doesn't exist anymore. That's, that's, that's That's the process of the winds of history. So there are specific cases to talk about. Slavery, exclusion. I don't want to let my university be um, shot at on its own. Almost every single centre of education and of excellence in this country has these same institutional problems about exclusion that deserve to be talked about. So it's unfair to just pick out Oxford. It's unfair to just pick out Oriel College. But Rhodes has a particular lightning rod. But I can show you statues in Oxford within 50 miles of here, hundreds of them, that could generate the same sort of discussion about people who did bad things. And I think it's, therefore, it becomes a question of who, who do we try to um, prioritise in those kinds of discussions? And until you do that, it's just a piece of lead or a piece of copper or a piece of bronze that somebody paid for and nobody bothers looking at
1: come back on this point of whether or not it matters you know Peter's essentially sort of saying you know there could be lots of Edward Colson's everywhere and uh, unless you make a ra- an argument about it no one really is that bothered. Statues for the most part don't matter we walk past them every day
2: they're grey they're boring almost all of them are terrible works of art. The one thing you almost never hear when you talk about removing statues is, oh, please don't, it's a wonderful work of art. Imagine if we were talking about removing paintings from the National Gallery. The art defence would be the absolute forefront of our thinking. Most of them are really naff. Peter's entirely right. Most of them are benign. But they're benign to me. But I can accept that some of them aren't benign to other people. Now, my, accent, my background is not West Indian or African-American. I'm african My ancestors weren't enslaved, but I know people who are West Indian heritage, who live in Bristol, who talk about the genuine emotions that they feel when they walk under the statue of the man who was the governor of the Royal African Company, the company that transported more of their ancestors into slavery than any company in British history. He did so with royal patronage, burning the letters RAC onto the chest of men, women, and children over the age of nine. I believe them when they say it hurts them, that they feel humiliated by Colston on his pillar. I don't personally. I go about my life cycle around Bristol. I'm I'm a a TV producer, so I obviously spend all my time having focaccia and uh, and (laughs) goat's cheese, and I have a perfectly nice life. I don't have a chip on my shoulder. I'm not oppressed by these statues, but I know people who are, and I believe them. That's all I'm asking, that we believe people when they say, These things are oppressive.
3: I believe them too. Um, I believe, although that this may be a debate that seems to be advanced by a vocal minority, people feel very strongly about it and do feel oppressed by those statues. No, no, I believe them. I I believe them. However, I don't think we should organise public space around their feelings. I think uh, to do so would to kind of weaponise this debate and emotion... And that would be, um, be the wrong thing to do. I think you, we have to ask, is this the best way to deal with inequality today? I would say no, it's certainly not. The problems that Peter talked about after we talked about it certainly isn't. Is it a dangerous distraction? I think so. Because what we're effectively doing is enslaving ourselves by the past we are not moving on from it. You no—you know, no, do have to ask, why has this debate happened now? Those statues have been around for a very long time. And I think it has come in a context where the past has become almost like the solution to contemporary problems. Most and it's of those not. statues were
2: contested at the time. Many of them were contested when they were put up. It's not them? true that, that, that this is suddenly a manifestation of liberal political correctness. That's just not true. These statues were contested throughout the time. Let's remember that the first Roads Must Fall campaign was in the 1950s, and it was white Boer students who wanted roads removed because of the Second Boer War. It's just not true, it's historically untrue to say that this is a modern, contemporary, frivolous debate. It's as old as statues. That's why they topple, that's why they fall. And it's part of the process Peter's talking about, that statues inevitably fall, they fall out of favour or they fall apart. This debate is part of that process. It's not some sort of anomaly or some sort of you know artificial situation created
1: by a bunch of Guardian journalists. And so just, just to inform this bit of the conversation, why don't you, because I know you've written about this, say something about the context in the United States, about these Confederate generals, on horseback often, which people assume were built in the Civil War and therefore we mustn't take them down because the Civil War is a big part of American history. The history of their construction is slightly different. Can you just fill people
2: in? This is another myth. We presume these statues are much older than they were. We almost always presume, because they're meant to look old and they weather and they look grey and awful very quickly. We presume they're old. Most of the statues in in the Civil War, which was 61 to 65, were not put up in 1866 when people were... Uh, the wounded and the the veterans were still alive. There's a great burst of statues being put up around the time of 1919 at the end of the First World War. Around the same time, 21 African-American soldiers were lynched for wearing their uniforms in public, having got back from the Western Front. These statues were put up then because there was a moment when there was hope for black rights, for black voting rights. And these statues were imposed on the South, on majority black towns, as a way of saying... You stay in your place. These statues have a function. The function is not to remember the Civil War. It is to intimidate black Americans. And the second burst is in the 1960s when civil rights began. So some of these statues are actually younger than the people defending them, rallying around with Confederate flags around their plinth saying, this is my history. They're younger than you are. (laughs) They're not your history. You're your history. Peter and Anato. Yes, yeah, so I, so I think that's right. I mean, you know, it's
5: not going to surprise you. I'm going to say that the, 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 the well, solution, if in surprise, you, have one. it's one is about education. And luckily now today, things like slavery are taught to school children, which they weren't when I, when I was a boy. And, you know, that, I think that's a very important part of our chapter. It is important, I think, to connect these kind of signal events of the American Civil War and the Confederates with the fact that almost all of the founding fathers who led America to independence were slave owners and, and took America to independence in order to protect slavery. Right, so that's not to say that the Confederate generals don't have their own hall of hell to, to live in. You know, As a historian, I don't have any problem about, like, like you say, of condemning acts and views for what they were at the time as well as what they are today. Uh, but you know, where does that leave Washington? Where does that leave Jefferson? Two of the great slave owners who have capital cities named after the massive memorials. But because they managed to take America to a different kind of pathway their role in slavery, their role in, in what it meant to be black in America or African in America, gets washed over by the fact that they, get, they gather sainthood. So it's how one calibrates those two. So it's not, not to bring everybody up, not to bring the Confederates up to, to justify them, but you've got then got to call a spade a spade. And, uh, you know, I personally have worked on medieval slavery. You know, don't go to Venice. You know, one of the world's great slaving centres, those palazzi that look great on the canals, the way in which we call people the Slavs today... That is where we get our word slave from. You know, we don't think about that because we don't get taught that either. Kids are disconnected from the idea that slavery is something that's important to understand in a whole range of situations and circumstances. So, you know, again, it's a very boring thing to say as a historian, and I'm not trying to not take sides, but it's that... If you're going to do it, then do it properly and explain that it's not just about bad men in the 1860s who happened to lose a war. It's about the history of America from its foundation was all built on all of this and that all the people involved, including the founding fathers who appear on the banknotes, who appear in their monuments, have cities named after them, who don't get vilified. They don't have to pay the price and probably, if by the logic of your argument, they should.
2: Well, no, because the very first thing I said is there are many historical figures that have two sides to their ledger. Now, Washington... When the British are in New York, sends spies in to try to capture the human beings he owns. But Washington's also one of the I think, most remarkable figures of the of, of the late, late. Well, he's a century. general, and we love generals, yeah. okay? Yeah. And we love men who fight and provoke there's war. There's two and what the Americans did story. was exactly that. They provoked Nathan like, Bedford Forrest, and used a Confederate general who murders the African American soldiers who fall into his hands, who's one of the founders of the KKK. I don't think there's two sides to that story. But I think the key mm-hmm. thing is here is the, these statues they weren't built to memorialize Nathan Bedford Forest. they were built to intimidate african americans who were beginning to just beginning
1: to grasp for their political and rights i, I, I want to, to come because i have a for one, let's hear after then you and i've got a question for all of you after.
4: i want to pick up on tiffany's idea that this somebody like me who has questioned many of our statues is weaponizing public spaces to me these statues have been, as David's just explaining, a means by which public spaces have long been weaponized. And there's almost this kind of tyranny of the majority, that the, the majority of people don't see this perspective of people who walk around feeling tyrannised and intimidated and oppressed by these figures. And this isn't just a, a, a straightforward race issue. If you take a figure like Cromwell... I didn't know for almost all of my life that he was regarded by so many Irish people as the first modern genocidal figure. And the idea of having his statue in front of the palaces of Westminster as the kind of father of parliamentary democracy was seen as a painful and and offensive thing by so many people. Should Cromwell be taken down? I personally don't feel oppressed by Commonwealth because it's not my history, but I have a lot of sympathy for people who do. So I think, you know, I would like to hear from them on this issue, and I think there should be more debate about it. My personal history as a black British person growing up in this country was that I felt that the role and contribution that people of my heritage have played to this country is completely invisible in public spaces. Military men, many of whom are imperial conquerors, are venerated and displayed and put on plinths all over the place. And the subliminal messaging of that is that the people who have contributed, who deserve respect in this country, as a child growing up who had no um, political agenda whatsoever, the messaging that I received was that the people who mm. are people of worth, who are of a worthy of historical note, who we should venerate, are these white militaristic men. And I think that it goes to the very heart of what kind of nation are we? Who do we value? Who do we venerate? At the moment, it is white men who Uh, led imperial military conquests and who I think are are totally out of sync with the idea of who we are as a country.
1: So uh, let me get you on this, Tiffany. Earlier on, when David initially said he wouldn't have Colston destroyed, he would have him put in a a museum, you didn't take up that suggestion because you said that's just to relocate the argument. But then later, Averworth said the trouble is with them being statues, they're in positions of reverence because we're craning our necks looking at them and if you have them in a museum you're looking at them in a different way, if I've summarised what you said. So what, what... just on that point about not destroying them but putting them in a museum where you can be almost eye to eye with them rather than looking upward, wouldn't that be a good solution?
3: I think, I think it relocates the debate from the public space to the institution, and museums are very good at putting things on pedestals, so I don't think it would in any way be uh, more critical, and I, hmm. there's a kind of self-flattering element to this kind of point, because so, we know better, because we're educated, unlike the kind of unwashed matters, who couldn't possibly look at Colston and think in any way that he was a vile human being, or question their past, or their relationship to him. So I think there's a kind of... There's actually a slightly paternalistic attitude towards it. But I just want to take up this point as to whether this is a new thing or not. I mean, David's right that these statues have always been the focus of Contestation, as have objects indeed in, in and museums, but they haven't... This debate has not dominated the political sphere quite so much, um, in the way that it has done in the last sort of 20 or 30 years. And I think we have to see it in its political broader context. My mind is that the past has become the place for politics, both for the left and right. They fight over which version of history they prefer. Um, So the, the right used to venerate nice white old men and talk about imperial conquest and grandeur, and the left now come in and talk about the wrongs of history. I think that moralizes history, and it has taken... A step away from envisioning a future society you know we used to have the saying joe hill used to talk about do not mourn organize i.e there is suffering there is hardship but we have to do something about it and now we have this kind of flip side almost of that which is that we must organize to mourn and i think it benefits nobody it, it certainly does not benefit the victims because in a way that they are kind of fatal, fatalistic about their past, dominating their present. They can't even walk down the street without feeling vulnerable. That's no sense of agency there. And it lets the political leaders of the present off the hook because they have no... It's it's all about the past. I've I've got to
4: pick up Tiffany on this idea that somebody like me is moralising history. History has been moralised just in favour of the people who killed, enslaved and colonised. And the, the evidence I have of this is that I have raised the question of whether we should look again at the legacy of Nelson, whether we should look again at the legacy of Churchill. If you raise basic points of historical record against these figures, you are met with a torrent, I mean hundreds of thousands of trolling comments that demonize you for introducing facts into the debate, and the reason is that people have so been moralised into unconditionally revering figures like Churchill, which is a hugely regressive move, because actually at, you know, his peers at the time were fully aware of his deep flaws, of his very problematic racist attitudes, so racist that they clouded his judgement about important strategic matters at the time. We've gone backwards into this... Can you give us an this. example just so, on
1: so, both Nelson and Churchill?
4: So, so, for example, Leo Amory, who was Churchill's colleague in the Cabinet, that Etonite of the same generation, a Tory on the right, you Wrote in his diaries that he feared that Churchill's racism towards Indians was so rabid and out of control that it was clouding his judgment about shipping in India in the Second World War. It was also said by other contemporaries that when Churchill began warning about Hitler in the 1930s, nobody took him seriously because he'd used the same language about Gandhi. And, you know, this idea that he'd so lost perspective because he was bound up in these ideas which were already by then deeply outdated. Nelson was using his position. In the House of Lords, to uh, campaign against the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade at a time when Britain was only a few years away from achieving abolition. So even at a time when Britain was divided, there was this huge groundswell among working class people, among parliamentary elites favoring the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade. Nelson was pandering to the interests of his friends and in-laws in the Caribbean. So this is a person as well who at his own time by the standards of his era was out of sync. Now all I'm suggesting is that we introduce those facts into the narrative around our relationship with these figures. And when you do that, people react with extreme hostility. And the reason is that they have been moralized into this idea that these figures are untouchable. They have an almost iconic... Deified status. So history is, has been moralized, it has been weaponized against the oppressed who have been forgotten, who are not commemorated, and whom, and even though, Peter, okay. as you said, we do learn about history in school, most people in this country know a far greater amount about abolition than they do about the 400 years of slavery that preceded it. And how can it be logical to, to celebrate having abolished something that you failed to really acknowledge you played a role just, in?
1: Just very before we get.
4: For my
5: two cents, and it's a very boring thing to say, the world in the 21st century is on the move. I think... Despite the importance of slavery, despite the importance of reevaluating Nelson, there are more important regions, there are more important peoples to be understanding their history, rather than the incessant navel-gazing that we want to do here. And I can tell you, if you write about Henry VIII, if you write about the First World War, there are these top Churchill, it'll sell by the bucket load, because people love that stuff. You write about China, you write about Russia, if it's not the revolution, you write about Iran, no one in this room can tell me the name of a Chinese emperor. Can they? Please shout out, put your hand up. Okay. Or or a Persian ruler that's not the last Shah. Nothing. We are totally ignorant. Add sub-Saharan Africa, not just sub-Saharan Africa, add almost any other place in the world outside Western Europe and the US or North America and we know absolutely nothing. So this question of refining and drilling down, how do we arrange, you know, it feels to me a bit like shuffling the, chair, the deck chairs on the Titanic. You know, Britain has to understand other people. So I absolutely welcome these kinds of questions about Churchill and Nelson and so on, and, and many others, and slavery. And, and it's important that work gets done, and it's important it gets done by the best scholars of the day, and they need an audience. But it seems to me that there are
1: other interesting topics that lose all that oxygen. So, uh, Tiffany, I know you want to reply to that. I want you to, because you were the one who mentioned it, about the uh, apology, because this is now a non-stature way that society's Remember their history uh, and uh, you know but you uh, mentioned Ireland but it, it was interesting that in I think it was around 2000 Tony Blair did give this uh, apology maybe it was a bit later for the British culpability for the famine in Ireland and there was one there were two kinds of hostile responses one was uh, you know a kind of uh, unionist position we said there's nothing to apologize for but there was another one that said even if there is something to apologize for what meaning does it have uh, man who was born you know a century and a half after it happened to stand up and apologize for something he had no involvement in and there are other cases on a sliding scale of re, you know, proximity to the event from david cameron apologizing for bloody sunday through not, to you know not, not brexit though but not brexit <laughs> yeah. though, to um, to pope john paul II apologizing for you know two millennia of catholic persecution of jews so w- what meaning does apology have when when, when we do that
3: I think it's really novel, actually, that political leaders apologise in the way they have done since around, the, um, since around 1990 onwards. Uh, Tony Blair also expressed regret for the slave trade. He didn't formally apologise. And there are obviously people like John Howard who wouldn't apologise for the way Australia treated the Aboriginal people. Um, I think you have to ask why and who benefits and what are the implications. I think they try and gain some sort of moral legitimacy out of it. it makes, it's aggrandizing for Tony Blair. Um it makes him look good because he can say we are not like those people in the past mm. we, we know slavery is wrong and there's a kind of real moral flattery to it. I think it's insidious in that it it divorces responsibility from action. I think that's the most important thing in politics is to take responsibility for one's own actions. Um, And I think it lets political leaders off the hook for inequalities today because, A, they're making themselves look good and, B, they can say, well, it's really because this thing happened 200 years ago. It's really nothing to do with us, although we are awfully sorry about it. So I think it is inhibiting politically. I don't think it's progressive.
4: But I don't have any problem with modern figures apologising for past wrongs for one simple reason. Everybody in this room will have heard somebody say, we won the war, or we won the World Cup in 1966, regardless of whether they were alive in 1945 or 1966. There is a tendency to be very comfortable celebrating one's own part in things that we had no involvement in but when it comes to things that were bad it's totally—it a totally it nothing to do with me, I wasn't alive then, you know move on, so you know there's a huge it's one of the many inconsistencies and the many hypocrisies in the way that we remember these aspects of the past, the reality is there is a very good reason why no senior British politician has ever apologised for the transatlantic slave trade, biggest atrocity against humanity in human history the reason is because it would open up the way to a very legitimate case for reparations and no politician is willing to lay the ground that would help a reparations case because it would have legs. Legally, there is a strong case. There are 14 Caribbean nations currently litigating for reparations because of Britain's involvement in the transatlantic slave trade. And so the specter of reparations is barring politicians from admitting something which should long ago have been admitted, which was that Britain was one of the inventors and major benefactors of a trade that trafficked in people, that has an intergenerational legacy that affects people's lives today. And if we just look at the the specter of Windrush, and this brings me right back to statues One of the things that I really took away from the recent um, stories about the Windrush generation... ...is how many of them were enduring this refusal to have NHS treatment, eviction by landlords... ...without going to their MP, or without speaking to journalists, or without raising the flag. And the reason is that they lived, although they should have been British... Although they had been here for so long, they lived in a state of insecurity. There are so many people who are entitled to be in this country, who are British, who do not feel able to claim their full place in this state. And the way that statues commemorate their oppressors is one of many complex ways in which we still delegitimize the Britishness of people of colour in Britain. And it's something we cannot afford to keep ignoring.
1: Peter, you, you in our initial go-round were quite sceptical of the importance of the statues issue and said, you know, there are other things. Would if, if people on this side of the argument were more campaigning about reparations and saying, you know, put aside the statues, we would rather see reparations for the descendants of slaves, would that in a way strike past your test of whether something matters or not more? No, I think that's, a, that's a just a question of law, isn't it? It's about how, how does one, how does
5: one uh, settle things that have been done that are wrong? And I think that it's a question about, above my competence to work out how one addresses that. And, you know, like most people in the world, I, I would like the, the most relevant and most competent court to be able to listen to the arguments and make a ruling. And,
1: and well, That's a political
5: judgment, isn't it, really, rather a legal... Uh,
1: well, I think that, yeah... I, it's, as a society, do we want to compensate yes, I
5: mean, to it, the millions? It, I'm not going to waste anybody's time saying, well, where do, where do you draw a line? And, you know, we do what about reparation for the Norman invasion. Of 1066, this is obviously it's a it's a fundamentally important question that Af was raising, and it's one that is meaningful. Right, it's not one about that's a joke. It's one that is absolutely serious. Personally, in the scheme of things, the statues are much less useful than education and by not just explaining what the past meant but what we can do about it and that education means being politically informed and understanding what levels of exclusion there are in society for people from the wrong backgrounds or wrong skin colour, wrong gender, wrong sexuality and so on because all of us on balance would agree that we should be a country that is based on equality and based on merit right? and how one achieves that is a slightly different story That it doesn't seem to me that pulling a few statues down would make a big difference to those kinds of debates I'd like to see something that's much more substantive Right? But having said that, you know, I, I work on places like Russia, for example, where no one had any question at all in 1990-91 that Lenin statues should be pulled down from all over the world, from all over the ex-Soviet Union. Yeah. And uh, no one in their right mind, I'd have thought today, would think that it would be a good idea for them to go back up, although there is a real revisionism in some of these countries towards re-erecting a Soviet past and re-glamorising what the Soviet Union meant. As far as the question of reparations, I think, I'd have thought it's how does one make a sensible reparation to people seven, six, seven, eight generations down that is fair and equitable because it's, a, you know, we're, we're almost out of business anyway in this country. But if we pay people who are the descendants of the people who were, who were enslaved and sold, you know with it i mean that's
1: that they deserve, it's worth billions hundreds of billions do, do you want to come in very briefly on this and then i've got just one be- last thing for all of you before we go to here
3: just very briefly on statues that have come down in if you go to budapest you can go to memento park and all the communist statues were put there and likewise in india but they came down as the social order was changed so they accompanied social change rather than this which i think is in place of it
1: Right, that's very interesting. The, and, 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 and relates to what you said before. Here's the last thing I want to put to all four of you. Uh, a man called David Reif, a journalist who wrote, for, covered the Bosnian uh, Balkan Wars in the, in the uh, 90s, wrote a book recently called In Praise of Forgetting, in which he said that we've got too much history, not just statues, but museums and commemorations. And he said, having seen these conflicts, particularly that kind of civil strife, they are entirely rooted, he said, in an excess of history where people say much as you were just thinking about we were the victims of you over there and therefore we must get our revenge and you see it played out generation after generation and he says we actually just need less of it much less of it and he quotes a Northern Irish writer who said you know we need to build a monument to amnesia and then forget where we put it um, yeah that 's a much more radical idea than anything we 've done and i 'm just curious all four so, of you sorry, are yeah. all four of you are historians of one form or other. What do you think of that idea that it 's not just about statues and museums. The whole shooting match is actually a mistake
2: i don 't think we have too much history in this country because I think what, what Peter was saying about our version of history is we only tell partial stories. so to talk about um, you mentioned China. I've never met a Chinese person who doesn't know that in 1860 the British destroyed the Summer Palace. I rarely meet a British person who understands that one of the greatest treasures yeah. in Chinese history, one of the great architectural and, uh, and, you know, and its contents were destroyed and looted by the by a British and French force under the younger Lord Elgin in the 1860s. The idea that we have a right, that we can decide what we remember and what we forget, when it comes to empire, doesn't work, because there's also then there's also... India hasn't forgotten the repression after the mutiny of uh, 1857. India hasn't forgotten Amritsar. India hasn't forgotten the Bengal famines and the famines of the 19th century. So there are a lot of people for whom the bits we remember aren't the bits they're remembering. But, but, so but but
1: David Rees' point was that even if it's people in India remembering Amritas, all this remembering means people cannot get on with living peacefully. But if we're remembering different things to them... I understand. It's, it's, it's just he's making a great point about human beings in a way that we just weigh down with these memories. But do so let's have other No, I, I, it's a talk.
3: really good book, and it's short and um, very nice short essays. But I think he, has, he makes a really important point, which is that it can be incredibly divisive and set people against each other. And kind of the conflict of the past just kind of is spread everywhere. I think that's what the kind of reparations campaign could create and I think it also creates in people a kind of a victim identity they're encouraged really to show their wounds because how else are you going to get reparations if you haven't suffered so I think it encourages people to feel frail and and unable to shape their own destiny when the whole point of something like decolonization was to throw off throw off the kind of shackles of history and shape history instead. Which is
2: why we're trying to decolonize universities and curriculums. But it's I part think of it's the same <laughs> process of taking control, <clears throat> not victimhood. Do Afo and I really seem to you these retiring,
1: cowering victims?
4: <laughs> it's
1: nonsense. Afo, why don't you come back, and then Peter, and then we're going to work I'm right. really
4: glad David raised the Summer Palace in Beijing because sometimes people say to me... Um, if you, you know, if you really want to move down, to take down Nelson, imagine if British people went around the world destroying their statues and culture, how would they feel? To which I reply, that's called the British Empire. You know, so many people in this country have no idea that Britain went around the world wreaking cultural havoc and destruction and destroying the heritage of my own family who lived in Kumasi, the center of the Ashanti kingdom. The, the artifacts, the, the history, the literature, um, They're they're lost forever because of the British raids in the Anglo Shanti Wars. Some of them ended up in private collections, some are in the British Museum, but the majority are lost and won't be recovered. I care about history, this isn't about erasing history, but this is about amnesia. And you know, I feel like there's a theme in my responses to Tiffany. Tiffany says this is weaponizing the debate, this is weaponizing identity, this is creating victims. The reality is this weaponization has been going on, only it's been going on against a minority who are not heard. The problem with, am- with, the problem with remembering less history is who gets to decide. At the moment, we remember only a very small number of things. I heard a statistic that there are 50 TV series every year in Britain about the Second World War. 50 every year, which rang true. We we're obsessed with the Second World War, and there's a reason why we we're obsessed with the Second World War. We won it. It's, it makes us feel good. You know, there is a good narrative. We're on the right side of history. We're the moral victors. We are not interested in the historical narratives that make us feel uncomfortable about our legacy as British people. So... I would be interested. I'm not so worried about less of that history. I want more of the history that we choose to forget and a greater understanding of the reasons why we've chosen to forget Okay,
1: thank you. Let's go for questions from all of you, or some of you, more realistically.
4: I just was interested because you said that one of
2: um,
0: the solutions would be to bring these statues in museum and talk about it. Because these statues show imperial past and how problematic it is. But museum as
2: institutions can be very problematic because they are a part of the, of the empire of <laughs> England, actually. So how would that solve the problem?
1: And when you say that, do you mean something like, for example, the British Museum with its treasures from all over? Yes. That, that sort of thing. Um, okay, that's interesting. And thank you. And then we've got microphone number. Have you got somebody else here? Yeah, we have. Okay, yeah, let's take a fourth from you. Yeah
6: justice and equality that the black community who are taxpayers should be subsidising the memorials and initiatives of others without a memorial of our own. Now, I'd like to actually put this into context.
1: Give me an example of what you mean. Yes.
6: Well, for example, there are many government-funded memorials. So, for example, in 2002, the Bali Memorial... 2007, the Hyde Park Memorial. Sure, OK. 2015, the Holocaust. And later this summer, there's going to be a new Tavistock Memorial. And the chair of the Tavistock Memorial said, it's important that 13 innocent victims aren't forgotten. That's correct. And also the memorials I've cited, it's correct that those victims shouldn't be forgotten. But what about Africans? 400 years of slavery and yet there is no memorial to remember them are okay. their lives worth remembering
1: Thank you. Let's um, thanks for all of those. We'll, get, we'll we'll see if we can get more in. Um, we heard earlier the solution, proposed solution was to move some of these difficult and controversial statues into museums, so they could be contextualised and discussed. And the questioner over there said, much as you did actually, that they are themselves problematic. And the point was made there about the British Museum, which is in some ways not in the way you intended a museum of empire, because it records uh, treasures that were taken around the world. You've written very directly about that, the the book we referred to when I introduced you. So what what about that, the notion that actually museums have... There's a whole other can of worms with what's in a museum because there's a whole lot of plundered items there that don't actually send perhaps the the message we might want.
3: They're also very busy. Uh, They're busy and they're full and they've got a job to do. Um, I want to come back to a point that David made, which is that they are... They're an argument, these statues. And in a way, I think that's one of their functions. Because one of the hardest things when I teach students is getting them to imagine the past as a different place to the present. You know, that historical imagination is really hard. And teaching slavery, or talking to students about slavery, is actually quite hard, because they all say, well, it's a terrible thing, and people in the past were terrible people. But it's really hard to try and and deliver a message and get them to understand that actually people thought very differently than the way that they do now. And some of the artefacts from the past, there's a, the Museum of Docklands has got quite an interesting exhibition now with a lot of anti-slavery iconography, little pots and things like that, which show the African as a supplicant waiting to be kind of saved. And those artefacts from history, dubious as we may feel them, can actually open up a little. So it, it, it's not I'm, not... I'm not saying every statue should be saved for that. I think that would be ridiculous. But erasing things that we don't like doesn't necessarily serve the purposes of history or opening up the historical imagination. But I just want to come on to the point about symbols because yeah. it's a really important point and that's my problem this was with this debate. Question, just to remind
1: people of the question, this was the question you said that the act of removing them would itself be a very symbolic, very political yeah. act. But yeah, you go... And you, that's you why it's limited.
3: And that's why it's limited because it's just politics by symbols. And I think, you know, Millicent Fawcett is now... In Parliament Square. I mean, who can argue with that? She's the most vanilla um, female uh, uh, suffragette campaigner going. And I just think, that, what about women's rights today? What about equality? Does Do that
1: just on militant it Because people have made that point that she was a suffragist rather than a suffragette, a suffragette, and not somebody who thought you know any means necessary. Do you think it would have? There, there were edgier choices that could have been made, and should they have been made for that? Um,
3: there were edgier choices, but I just wouldn't. Go to statues? I really wouldn't. And I. So you're with David on I'm, this. One. I, yeah, I am actually on this one.
1: Good. So Peter, um, I, I want to put to you the question that was made here, which is there are statues. I know you were at the very opening, sort of saying, you know, we should have other things to do. But the question here made the very good point that there are memorials to all kinds of things you know, the Bali attack and uh, the 7-7 attack is about to get its own memorial. In that context, wouldn't you think, and I know your larger point about we're too introspective sure. anyway, sure. but given that we do have these memorials, it's 7-7 and other things, uh, a question you asked, surely the victims of 400 years of slavery deserve some kind of memorial well, in our capital
5: city. W- why our moronic politicians can't see that and do something about it rather than apologising all the time is a mystery to me. So you would favour that kind of memorial? Absolutely. I mean, how could, how could anybody argue with that? With that? You know, as a, as a, as a scholar, the yeah. more museums, the more we curate our things, the better. So I think that, of course, that's right. I mean, it's, a, it's, 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 it's incredible to me that we don't have this already. But you need political will. You need funding. And yeah. you need to be funding the humanities. That's all part of the same script.
4: I just wanted to, to, to address the point about the, you know, the problem with museums. You know, museums, the academy, the school, and university curriculum—they are all colonial institutions. I agree Sta- museums are not um, necessarily a safe space. But this is a completely cyclical problem. You know, we have statues that are part of our tendency to revere our colonial past, and we don't want to take them down because any of the places we could put them also revere our colonial past. And this is really—and I totally agree with David about this. This is not really about statues; it's about cultural attitudes towards history it's about our relationship with our past it's about our contemporary identity and our imagined identity in the past and just to finish what tiffany said of course the past was a different place but one of the things we downplay in my opinion is the history of resistance you know working class protest against things like slavery the fact that in the mill towns of northern england people whose livelihood depended on the cotton trade from the slavery south went on strike in support of slaves. These are white working class people who had no reason other than their conscience and their morality to take a stance against the transatlantic slave trade. We also don't remember them. There are so many things we forget because it's not convenient, and I would like to see them all back in the record for debate.
1: Let's not talk about the Guardian's editorial position on that. <laughs> Do you know that would that? be
4: another interesting conversation. The
1: Guardian sided with the cotton yes. traders and not the striking workers yes. um, and sided with the South and the Civil War extraordinarily. But that's another bit of history. Identity is now, let's just take in a couple, two or three more questions. So if we can get a microphone over to uh, here.
6: If we're talking about political figures, I mean, there will always be something negative about... Were rulers or leaders like Churchill for example you know, the fact remains that Churchill was the prime minister during the war and he did lead the country but there are also a lot of negative stories about Churchill yep. but uh, if his statue is up there is it justified to remove it and uh, can we only have statues of people like Florence Nightingale and Mother Teresa? I mean, I is is that the Thank
1: you. I get it. Can you pass the, yeah, 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 the yeah, microphone well. just behind you? Thank you. Can we only have statues for people who are unambiguously good
7: and angelic? Yeah. What is the criteria by which we remove statues? I mean, you mentioned one criteria, which is it is offending to someone. And as an example, you mentioned the... Uh, You know, statues by uh, the Nazi regime in Germany, which of course are offending to Jews. Now, I am from Germany and I can tell you we are not removing these statues because they would be offensive to Israel or to the Jews. We are removing them because we are afraid of ourselves. We remove them because we are afraid that they become an assembly point for Nazis, and that the atrocities that we lived in our country are reoccurring, we are still scared of that 70 years after the Second World War. That's why we removed them. Not because they're offending. There are offending statues all over the world, so uh, the question is, you know, are you scared that slavery is coming back, or why do you want them to be removed? Fascinating. Thank you. And uh, your question goes to this point about how powerful
1: uh, these things can be. And there's a very last one, I think, over here. This will be the last one.
4: So, following on quite nicely from that, I would ask that when we talk about removing statues, it seems that people are really afraid of history being erased. Histories, in the first place, aren't being taught in schools in anywhere near an adequate level to deal with empire and the violence and pain of that so in Australia at the moment there's been a call after the statement from the heart last year for a process of truth telling about our history and the word used means reconciliation after a struggle but people have been really afraid because that requires a recognition of the pain and the harm and that ongoing violence so what are you so afraid of if you don't want to take a statue down
1: Thanks for all of those. Sorry for people we couldn't get in. David, a quick one for you. You said at the beginning that if people are unambiguously bad, in a way there's not two sides of the ledger, and you cited Colson as an example, then you said there's not really a case for keeping the statue up. Put the other way, the questioner says, you know, unless they're Florence Nightingale, does that mean they can't be remembered and we're only going to end up with these very vanilla, was your word about Millicent Fawcett statues? Is that the risk? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. Um...
2: Also, I have a huge problem with both Mother Teresa and Florence Nightingale, so um, <laughs> let's,
1: let's not go there. Um, and in a way, there is no vanilla figure, actually, in a way.
7: There, there is not. I, mean, I, I think
2: is this, this, I mean, this is why I think the debate's not about about statues. You know, I've got no problem with being a statue to Churchill, but I do have a problem with the fact that we need to tell a more... He's a much more complicated figure. He's a much more interesting figure than the, the Darkest Hour figure. I just want us to be honest about our history. I'm not... I don't... I don't really care about the statues that much. What I care about is us being honest about the history. One of the myths about people who debate these is that this is some form of... That it's all about offence. I've never mentioned offence. I don't feel offence at any statue. And it's not about a sense of victimhood. I really don't feel. And I presume you don't feel I carry myself like a victim. It's to do with, I think we can become a better country. I think we're a good enough, strong enough, honest enough country to confront our history, the good and the bad. I think we're up for it. I think we can do it. I just would be happier to live in a country that wasn't in denial about parts of its past. Great.
1: Because time is so short, I'd like the three of you to to take on those last two questions, both of which had fear in them. Uh, the German example and then the examples from Australia, but both were saying, what are you afraid of about either keeping these statues or removing them? Um, Why don't we start with you, Tiffany?
3: Um, It's a really good point about Germany, but you see, I think there that there is a huge distrust of the public, and I think there is here too. And that makes me feel very uncomfortable. It's not that I think the public are the you know, this a wonderful, smart group of people, but I think we have to treat them with a little bit of respect and not like they're Pavlovian dogs who can't see a statue and not turn into some sort of Nazi or... But a woman
2: was killed last year at the base of a statue to General Lee. The far-right, the Nazi, the KKK are rallying around these statues and people have died.
3: What did Steve is that Bannon say?
2: Elicit- Hang on, let me And, he's, and, he's and what come did up? Steve
3: Bannon say? He said, as long as they're talking about statues, we've got them. I, I think there's a kind of circle where the alt right and the whatever you might want to call it are kind of reinforcing. A battle over statues. I, I think we need to.
2: I wrote exactly that. Yeah, and okay. I, I, I just discussion. think we
3: just need to depoliticise it entirely.
1: But they are dangerous because they. I, are
2: don't, think I don't think they're
3: dangerous. you don't think statues are dangerous? I do not think they are dangerous. I mean, in the
1: case of the, what happened in Charlottesville, that, it was the removal. That triggered the it wasn't the 't it? no, no, it was a demonstration about the statue. In it, it was, yeah, it was a lightning rod. People yeah. are
2: using, and they always have used these statues yeah. Yeah. to
1: rally around. Let, let me just because we're only to white parents, we're already so. over time. Sorry, I'm talking over you, but I just want no, to make sure we wrap it up. So after the um, the question there was, you know, in Germany they had they felt a very good reason not to put these up because they were worried about them being rallying points here in a way what is the, the i'm just channeling what the question said what are you afraid of that might happen if these statues these revering objects remain in place and he he put it sort of rhetorically are you afraid slavery will come back if you keep nelson up there on a plinth on a pedestal
4: so slavery was the manifestation of an ideology of white supremacy which has not gone away and it bears itself out in so many parts of contemporary life in the uk Um, black Afro-Caribbean school boys are 168 times more likely to be excluded than white kids. Youth unemployment for young black men is is double what it is for young white people. 50% of people of black African heritage live in poverty, which is more than two times the rate for other people who live in poverty. The reality is that we have not recovered from these traumatic histories. They are part of our everyday life. And we constantly live in a state of amnesia where we call this the ancient history that people who raise it are, are told that they're victims instead of the fact that we are simply introducing facts into the debate. What the lady from Australia you know, made such an... And Australia is going through a very interesting conversation right now. I know exactly what we are afraid of. Britishness is a fragile identity right now. We cannot withstand questioning, interrogating, and talking honestly about historical record. That is the real problem here. And I agree with David that statues are a symptom and not a cause. The real issue is our fragility, our insecurity, our hostility in having a very honest conversation about who we are and how we got here. And that is why we need to have this debate. Thanks.
1: Thank you. And uh, Peter, a closing thought from you. Well, you know, it's, it's,
5: I'm not sure there's much to add. I mean, I, I, I of course, agree with, uh, with um, what Afra says. And, uh, you know, I, I just think all of these things are not affected by lumps of rock. These, they are highly symbolic. I think we're all agreeing with that. I mean, it's a, it's a great apocryphal story about medieval Italy where um, a town attacks all city-states, attacks a neighbouring town, and they're led to... One of, the, one of the cities in Tuscany is led to salvation by a particularly charismatic leader. And the town then gather round to say, well, what should we do to commemorate this great victory? We you know, snatched victory from the jaws of disaster. And the, 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 the townsfolk folks say, well, we should, uh, we should make him our ruler. And they say, no, we're a city-state, we're highly democratic. And then the next one says, we should make a statue to him. And they say, no, that's no good because the statue will stay up for a while and then it will be torn down. And then someone at the back says, kill him, make him a saint. And... Um, and that gives you perpetuity. So, you know, I think that these... these are. The, 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 I recognise the discussions and the importance about statues as symbols. They do have lightning rod moments, you know, Rhodes and Colston, are two particularly famous examples. But, you know, half of the Oxford colleges were founded by people who murdered their wife and had to pay penance. And it's how far back you go in all of this. It's at it's my vanilla ending, is that... You know, that is why you have world-class academic institutions here. Where you, and, and it doesn't work without you giving up your evenings and coming to hear us talk. It doesn't go without you buying uh, David and Tiffany Zafras. Terrific books, very different in their scope, but all trying to do something similar, which is to ask questions about who we are, right? And the only way you can start to learn and, uh, is to start by listening. So,
1: thank you. Thank you. Um, we, we thank you very much... I leave you with two things. First, the words inscribed, etched into the ceiling here, you may not notice, close with, neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. So they are mindful of how history and how it does pass but I thought that I'd be promised you four people who were going to grapple with these themes and I think they've done so extraordinarily substantively and engagedly and so I, I joy, it remains for you to join me in thanking David Oshoga Afua Hirsch Tiffany Jenkins and Peter Frank Thank you all very much
0: What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket maybe you're on a run